Hello and welcome to the Soul Podcast on iCode Media. Today I'm about ready to have a great conversation with Dr. Christy Locke and Dr. Justin Kwan and Dr. Michelle Andrews. And we're going to talk about kind of the journey of MySight from a patient and parent's perspective. Now that we've had MySight available for a number of years, I'm super excited to get uh, Dr. Locke's perspective as well as Dr. Kwan's and Dr. Andrews as always. Um, uh, one other disclaimer is to know that uh, the participants in this panel today have been compensated for their time. And I think it's a really valuable um, piece of time for us. And I, I want you to focus on primarily just making sure that you're kind of listening to uh, their perspectives as clinicians, as opposed to just thinking about them as um, as vendor partners. Uh, I think they're valuable in both ends, but thinking about them as clinicians is super helpful in my perspective. So as always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends and support those who support us. So today I want to talk about the My Day Multifocal for just a second. It has been a really great thing in our practice for our patients who are presbyopes of all areas, but you know those tricky presbyopes are always the ones that are kind of emerging where they don't want to give up any of their faraway vision, but they're having some struggles up close. And so what uh, the My Day Multifocal has been able to do for us is to allow those patients to transition into a multifocal more easily. And then as we have those patients progress into other levels where they need more ad powers it's been a nice smooth transition so the ultimate hurdle that we've seen in our practice before the my day multifocal was that we'd have patients who would resist any transition to a multifocal lens because of that distance blur we just haven't seen that so if you haven't started using my day multifocal in your practice I would encourage you to start, check it out, uh, contact, reach out to your Cooper reps for those trial lenses uh, and commit to My Day Multifocal for your patients. I think they're going to like it. If you haven't checked out MacuHealth yet for your patients in Category 1 through Category 4, I think there's a lot of evidence that you should be considering. The first is if we just look at AREDS 2 and what they, they talk about, MacuHealth is a, so for patients in Category 3 and Category 4 um, AMD, MacuHealth is a great option for them that follows that entire, um, that entire protocol, and it also adds mesozeaxanthine to the mix, which if you look at some of the evidence, I believe shows me that it's going to thicken the macular pigment better than without mesozeaxanthine. It also uses the a correct AREDS2 dose of zinc uh, at 25 milligrams, and so you don't have to worry so much about the potential side effects of zinc. The other thing to, to think about, and it's beyond the scope of this, although you've probably heard me talk on other podcasts, is that in patients in category one and two, there may be some additional benefit uh, to supplementing them with something that may be a little bit less than the AREDS2, so you don't have to add as much to it. And that's where I use the MacuHealth LMZ3. And so I think if you haven't done this yet, I'd consider MacuHealth in your practice and for your patients. And it's been great for my patients, and, um, and we really feel like we have the ability to uh, help those patients in all categories of macular degeneration. So Dr. Locke, tell me, what in, in general, I'm going to kind of open this up big picture, and I want you to, to kind of give me your perspective of how you've utilized MySight in your practice over the last few years since, since the FDA approval, and has that process changed for you uh, and, and the approach changed for you um, from when you first started? Yeah, so my site really helped me build the myopia management practice that I currently have. Right when my site was launched, I was just coming out of my residency, which I did at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And I was lucky because I had a really great introduction to it, even as part of my residency. Um, coming to Thomas I Group, which is where I work now, 
Um, it is a ODMD private practice, and really what I was hired on was a platform of, of starting a myopia management clinic. So even when I was interviewing for that position, I was able to say, look, there's this FDA-approved new technology lens that I think I could hit the ground running with if you would give me the opportunity to, to build in this way. And lucky for me that they did, and so far it's been wildly successful for me. Um, with my current um, location, I am um, kind of the main person that's doing myopia management uh, in our practice, and there's about 15 locations that are feeding into me. So it's been really great for me to, to pull from the other Thomas I Loop I Group locations, and I've started to build um, a name for myself even in the Atlanta area. In terms of how I use it now versus when I started, I think just having my own experience with the lens and the product and patients um, that I have fit has really exploded my confidence. I get a lot of referrals from patients that I've already been treating, and it's just something that has continued to build upon itself um, throughout the, the two and a half years that I've been using it. Well, from your perspective, uh, when you think about kind of the patient response and your approach to presenting different types of options, uh, what's the what are the, what's kind of the learnings from your perspective of of kind of what parents what's really important for parents what they want to know about about myopia management uh, and my site specifically? Yeah, I think it really comes down to um, having confidence in the data. This is not something that's cheap. You know, parents really want to know that what they're doing is in the best interest for their child, that it's going to be effective. Um, the next thing that parents really care about is safety. Uh, having a daily disposable product um, really puts them at ease, and it makes it easier for my kids as well. Um, oftentimes, I'll, I'll tell patients, you know, if they feel like anything gets into their eye throughout the day, something goes wrong, they just take that lens and throw it away. They can always put another one in, have a couple extra in their backpack, and I always um, give my patients extra trials when they come in for their checkups if they feel like they've had to, to waste any. And I, and I tell that to my, to my patients, my parents up front, so they know that this is you know, a conversation about safety and efficacy, and, and it, it takes away some of the pressure that this is just a product. Um, finally, I think that uh, parents really care about results and the confidence of their kid. Uh, before I enroll the kid in, in the um, MySite Myopia Management program, I do um, fit the kid and give them trials, kind of like what you might do for a normal contact lens. That way they get a week of wearing MySite lenses, make sure they adapt to the blur treatment, make sure they're comfortable putting the lenses in, taking them out, that there's no, that there's no barriers. And that really, really builds their confidence so that when they purchase the lenses, when they're committed to the program, for the entire year, everybody is on board, both patient and parents. So I want to kind of dig in there a little bit because I think the listeners really uh, value when they hear experts uh, say what they would say to parents. So let's say a parent comes into your exam room, a uh, child has myopia or progression of myopia, fits right within the category of, of my site. Uh, what does that sound like? What does that, that conversation initially sound like? Let's say, I mean, you're a referral center, so maybe you're not doing comprehensive exams at that point, but, but kind of give me a, walk me through what that sounds like you're talking to me as the parent. I do actually have quite a few patients that I see as routine, so I'll, I'll, I'll start with that. So if I yeah. see a patient 
um, for their routine exam, I'm seeing significant progression. Um, one, I'm asking about parental history. Are they highly nearsighted themselves? When did they start wearing glasses? How long has their child been wearing glasses? Have they seen rapid progression across multiple years? That sort of thing, um, just to kind of establish a baseline. And then I have kind of a simplistic handout that I provide the patients that day that kind of breaks down different research in myopia management and different treatment options that we offer at, at my uh, location. And then I bring them back for a separate consult. Um, I feel that trying to rush through everything at that same day of the comprehensive exam, um, it puts too much pressure on the parent to make a decision. And then I find that a lot of younger parents like to do a little bit of research on their own before coming in. So giving them a handout, listing some of the things that we're going to talk about, gives them that freedom to do some background research of their own, come in with questions, and then we get a separate visit specifically just carved out to answer questions and collect some kind of more um, unique baseline measurements. Um, for my patients, I um, am lucky enough to have access to an A-scan, so I'm taking a corneal topography, a baseline, um, A-scan, and I actually plot that out on a graph um, compared to normative data, either um, for Caucasian children or Asi Asian children, depending on their ethnicity. And from that, I can, I can just give them a risk assessment. I say, look, you know, you and dad are both over a minus five. Your child start, started wearing glasses younger than the age of eight. They're above the 75th percentile in their axial length. And they have faster than expected myopia progression themselves this past year. You know, I feel like they're at really high risk of continued fast progression. This is what we can do for them. So just kind of breaking it up that way, tying all those things together, really gives the family trust in me that I'm paying attention to their child. And then I can make a customized treatment plan for that specific child based off of their lifestyle, their age, what the family's comfortable with. Um, and that really is, it sets the stage for the rest of the management. I find that if you rush in at the beginning, um, you know, if you don't build that foundation of trust, you're just going to be chasing your tail the entire time you're, you're managing that patient. So I do like to carve it out separate. And with my patients that are referred from, from other providers, it's the same. You know, they, they come in specifically for a myopia management consult to have that conversation. And, um, and so... Justin, I know that there's probably been um, some post-market or, or in-market research related to uh, parental um, preferences and learnings. Are there things that uh, Dr. Locke is, is hitting on or anything she's missing on that we should be attentive to as providers know about any of that uh, potential in-market research? Yeah, we've done a few things partnering with agencies and, and others. Uh, one notable one we did uh, a couple of Mays ago, and it was a three night in a row, like a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, just over Zoom. Um, these uh, parents were selected based on, yeah, uh, having said yes uh, to treating their children with MySight. And uh, yeah, we gained some really valuable insights uh, in that these parents really trusted their optometrist, their eye care provider. And yes, one of them did want to do more research on her own through, you know, a Facebook mom's group or, you know, looking on the web a little bit. Uh, but most of them did say they, they just said, if my doctor said it, that was good enough for them. And they did sort of a sense like the urgency to act yeah, that came out in, in the conversations and the emotion of their voice. But I really liked what uh, Dr. Locke said about 
Um, you know, this is what we can do. I think like I'm getting really interested lately into like the ver the verbiage and the words. Oh yes. Uh, so even oh, through yes. the Expo West meeting and so on, I'm wondering. I'll open up to all three of you. Like, when should we say we can do something? When should we say we should do something? And when should we say we need to do something? Uh, I, I think Dr. Locke was starting to get into those nuances a little bit, but uh, I think some parents will receive each of those three levels a little differently, right? Well, yeah, that, let's ask that question. And since Justin is is uh, doing what I do to Michelle all the time and taking over the questions, which I'm totally fine with, actually, I think it's great. So, Dr. Locke, um, the let's let's put that question to you. So, have you thought differently about can, should, uh, and what was the third one? Dr. Need. Mark? We need to do something yeah, about yeah, this. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'll preface that. I'm, it's interesting to me, Justin, that you that you bring up the the words that we use because, um, you know, it's one of the funniest things when I when I do talks across the country. Um, just small. So, in my words, as a lecturer, um, I, you know, I've learned this over years of making the mistake is that I can say the exact same thing and reverse the order with two or three words. And, and people will miss my point and it will become exceedingly unclear. And I've learned this same, and because I learned that for so many years, I, I now apply it to my practice as well. And even just the order with which I take, uh, I approach a conversation with a patient, like when I'm gonna talk about this condition, when I'm gonna talk about this condition, uh, that means so much in terms of their retention and their, their desire to act. So I, I think it's great that you're thinking on that level um, I think very few clinicians actually do. So Dr. Locke, give us your uh, perspective then about those words and then any uh, order when you're talking, let's talk about the comprehensive exam, any order about how you're gonna talk about uh, what, when, etc. Yeah, I actually really like those terms. I think it kind of fits into to kind of what I do with my, my, I call it a risk assessment. I say you're at low risk of fast progression, moderate or high risk of fast progression. Um, I do definitely think that um, you have to be leery of shoving things down down people's throats. Um, I feel like uh, you walk a fine line um, as what we do in optometry between seeing like seeming like a salesperson and seeming like a, a medical provider. And I try to walk that line very carefully, um, especially being in my in, in type of location that I work at, at ODMD practice. Like I want to make make sure what we're doing has value and, and that it's at the right time for that particular child. Um, as part of the um, consult, I think being able to sift through all the data gives me a really unique perspective. And I've had some kids where I say, look, I think that you are at low risk of fast progression. Um, you know, your myopia is really all corneal right now. Your axial length is well below the 50th percentile. You haven't had rapid progression this year, but both, both mom and dad are over minus six and they're so concerned. Well, that's low risk of fast progression. That's maybe, what was, what did you say, Justin? We, we could do something. Yeah, we, we can. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, yeah, we can do something. And a lot of patients, a lot of families really want that. They do just want that prophylactic coverage. Um, I think we should do something. Okay. Oh my goodness. I'm already forgetting what you said. So can need, need is, should is and, the last line. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So should is actually really important for me with what I do as well, because I have a lot of kids that have really, really high astigmatism or they're, we're also managing their amblyopia ther therapy as well. You know, they're patching, 
you know, they're well outside the range of OrthoK or my site. And that's really important for me for disentangling what is going to be best for you. Or I have a lot of patients that will that have strabismus as well. Atropine often worsens different types of strabismus. So that's something that we have to take into account. And just figuring out what will work best as, as a whole picture for that kid is important. Um, and then the needs to do something, uh, I had one of those today, and I feel like I did kind of lay that hammer down. You know, mm -hmm. I saw the child the previous there. They progressed one diopter. We talked about it. This year they come back. She's eight. She progressed two diopters in both eyes. And, and it, you know, a lot of times these kids, they'll ask them, are you struggling in school? Oh, no, everything's fine and rosy. And, and you know, they're 2100 coming in in their classes. So um, just, I think, also demonstrating to parents in whatever way you can how that child is actually seeing, either with plus lenses or just demonstrating on the chart. This is how they're coming in. Click, 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 click. This is the level that's passing school requirements, and you, you see that realization on their face. Um, so that's really interesting, I think, to put it almost like in a stoplight level of, of you know, what, what is your level that we need to do something. Um, and I think that parents really feed off of kind of what, Justin, you were saying, us as a provider. If we are showing, if we're putting that energy towards, okay, now is the time, I do think that that's significant and that a lot of parents will act on that. And relating to what you said about like the walking the fine line of like selling the treatment or the product or what have you, even outside of myopia, what I found that is resonating with doctors and our colleagues here is, you know, when you describe myopia as the eye is growing two to three times faster than it should be, and it's my job to get this back on track, right? To get the growth rates of the axial link back on track. Um, I think that has a, a little bit of distance separation from the dollar signs, right? This is my job. As Dr. Fergoso said at Expo West, it's our professional responsibility. I wouldn't tell that to a parent, but, you know, I think it's just, I'm just doing my job. I, 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 like Dr. Locke said, this is what's best for the child. Parents expect you to deliver on that front. Um, but yeah, I think a healthy distance uh, from, from the, you know, what happens at the cashier is, is good, right? I think part of that also is, as I listen to both you, Dr. Kwan, and, and Dr. Locke, you, um, it's not that you're not passionate about what you do. I, I can certainly pick up that you're passionate about it. Um, what I think can happen, though, is that you are almost, um, I'm probably not going to use the right word, but you're disconnected in a sense of like being agnostic of, like you do want the, the child to do what's best for them. But also I get the sense that it's not like, going to be ruin your day if that kid that advanced two doctors and was in the 75th percentile for axial length measurements and you know they they didn't do it last year if they don't do it again this year i don't get the sense that you're going to go home and beat yourself up about it maybe maybe you'll be like golly i wish i could have done more or said more but you won't feel like you're you're defeated and i think that can take the, the passion in a sense of like i it, it can take the salesy passion away from, from it when you sort of are a little bit more agnostic. Do you think that I'm right about that or is that, am I just misreading it? Go ahead, Dr. Luck. I think the right word to use is clinical or scientific, right? Like we're, we're talking to them in a way where we're analyzing data, just like you would do with anything else, just like you would do their primary care doctor would do. They say, Hey, this is your blood work. This is what I think is best for you. 
they have to take that next step. Um, they have to, you know, even if you're referring to a specialist, even our own patients, they have to take that next step and actually go. And you can talk to them until you're blue in the face, but if they aren't willing to, if you can't get them there, and that's where I think um, for me, especially being young, like I, I have tried really hard not to come off as pushy. And I feel like that is, is my winning you know, that, that's the thing that wins most people over is, is allowing them to make that decision, explaining why it's important, but, um, but allowing to taking a step back and, and allowing them to get there on their own. Well, I think, I think to that point, um, I think you articulated it much better than I did, but it, um, it doesn't, it comes across much more genuine, um, even when, mm -hmm. because you do care and, and it's, it's not, uh, as Dr. Kwan alluded to, it's taking it away from the cash register, right? So you don't have to worry about that as much. But I, I will tell you, I think there's a lot of concern among the profession. Uh, I think it's mostly subconscious, but also there's a, a lot of conscious concern that like, okay, well, if I, if I recommend this treatment and the child still progresses or the, the child has uh, uh, maybe not the optimal uh, visual acuity that I had or patients don't even want to proceed with it, then it's a poor reflection on me. So how do you overcome that? First of all, I guess, is there any learnings um, in any of the data that we look at in the in-market research, uh, Dr. Kwan, or any learnings that you, so we'll talk, we'll, we'll ask you first, Dr. Kwan, any learnings that we can gather about what parents want from us and how we can know that may not be something we have to be concerned about? Yeah, I think first the expectation setting with, with anything, any treatment whatsoever is, the studies will show averages. The kids in your practice are not going to be exactly like the kids in the study. And when you look at the range of outcomes, like you don't know where exactly that one child will fall. And so the in-market research really showed us the parents were looking for that six-month visit. And I know Dr. Locke has some cool stories about six-month follow-ups yeah. and evaluations when these kids and families come back. But uh, they, one of the parents said it was their litmus test, right? The six-month visit. Like things could be going peachy keen or we could be struggling with insertion removal for the first couple of weeks. But as far as the efficacy of, of the treatments uh, of what my side could do for, you know, age appropriate children, they were looking like just waiting with bated breath for the six month and, and then seeing, watching the every click of the ferropter maybe and, and just like looking at those numbers and like, was this investment going to pay off? And if they cleared that hurdle, I think everything is a lot easier from that point forward, but yeah, love to hear from Dr. Yeah. Locke. <laughs> Dr. Locke, just a second. I, I want to get um, Michelle. If you have any, Dr. Andrews, if you have any perspective on that as well, because Dr. Kwan, you you mentioned this, and I do feel that I have patients whose parents I can I can feel leering over the back of my shoulder, watching every click on that ferropter. And I'm and I, and like internally, I'm almost like, oh, I hope that I hope that we don't have any more minus here. You know, like. And it, and it actually kind of stinks from my objectivity because I'm wondering like how much I'm going to push that kid to see just because I know their parent is over the shoulder, you know? So it'd almost be like, uh, you know, please, Mrs. Smith, just, you know, step out of the room for a second. Let me get my objective measurements and then we can, then you can leer over my shoulder again. But Dr. Andrews, any, any perspective on that? Any addings to that? Yeah. You know, we talk a lot about the science and the efficacy and that's really important. Our, research showed that parents did go home and research. You know, as Dr. Locke talks about sending parents home with, with information or access to good 
information about myopia. That's really important because they are going to do their research. And they are very much looking for when they come back that validation that they made the right decision. There are other ways to help them along that journey. Six months is a long way to go to wait for that, that gold star or the validation. So especially with kids who are wearing contact lenses for the first time, any positive reinforcement you can give them in little steps along the way was also very valuable to parents. So for example, when their kids got the lenses in and out on a regular basis, celebrating that, when they're going through the eye exam process or the follow-up exams, and they're doing things more quickly or efficiently or with more familiarity, those little wins along the way are really, really important because it even with all the science and the data and the, the information that they're looking for, this is still a very emotional decision for parents. And, and they're often making this decision from a place of emotion. And it may be a different emotive element for each parent. You know, Dr. Locke talked about showing the parents how their child sees and the click, click, click. You know, once, you know, for if you're that parent who is going to respond to that, you probably can't forget that. And that's the emotion of, I have to do something. I don't want my child to keep getting worse. And so I, I would just remind everybody that at the end of it, parents are coming at it from a very emotional place as well as a data-based place. Well, I think that really is helpful, uh, Dr. Andrews. And, and Dr. Locke, that kind of leads me to my next follow-up question with you is, in terms of building some of those wins, um, how much different is this than, I don't want to minimize it, but how much difference is, different is this from, you know, 15 years ago, patient first time contact lens wear, or just a patient that is maybe a hyperope and their first time contact lens wear? Are there strategic steps that you take in place that are similar and also dissimilar than just a normal soft contact lens patient? It's in terms com of follow-up and expectations. It's completely different for me. Like this is really built in, built to be a program with multiple follow-ups per year. Um, I actually, for my first, my first year program, um, patients see them at three months. So I see them at three months and six months because I, I, I actually really agree with Michelle. I feel like you need that three month visit to, as a check-in point, as a, yes, this is going well. You can kind of smooth out, iron out any of the wrinkles. And I don't know. I just feel like it really helps keep bring everybody into the fold. Um, I also, g going off of what you said, Chris, really take the pressure off of that refraction. I put very, very little emphasis on the refraction because a lot of these kids are very young. Um, I'm not cycloplegic them at my follow-ups, you know? So I take their axial length, I plot their axial length, I say, look, this has not changed a smidgen. Um, and so I think it really, you know, if they're kind of struggling on a couple letters that the S looked weird. They're, they're not peeking over my shoulder as much because I can put it on a graph and then they can put that graph on their refrigerator. You know, um, I'll draw a little smiley face on it because it, the results are so good. Um, the other thing with my sight lenses, with any of the multifocal, you know, lenses, I always tell my patients that you're going to have your very best vision with both eyes open and the lights on. And that's how I test my patients first, because if you're dimming the lights, they're going to, for me, they test like one line different in their vision. You know, I also, 
I follow an astagmus protocol for testing vision with these lenses, so I'll use a frosted occluder or a plus six lens to kind of keep that pupil as, as normal as possible. Um, and they do a lot better. So, and I, all of my technicians know that. I've actually had um, patients come in who have failed uh, like a sports screening or a screening at school because they bring them into like a pitch black room. And, and you know, so I, I think that that de-emphasizes the the vision as as well. And I ask them every time, every time they come in, how are you? Are you happy? Are you seeing well? And they're like, this is the best thing ever. You know, this is the, the, the best thing. And it's, it's, it becomes easy for them. And most of the patients have no problem wearing the lenses. You know, I, I usually tell them we want them to wear them six days per week, 10 hours per day. They're all wearing them more once they, once they get that built into their, their ritual. And selfishly i like seeing them at the three months as well to make sure that that that's working out and and usually it is and finally my, my last point is i i do give trials to these kids especially at that three month when they're like oh dr Locke, you know i i got dirt in my eye i ripped three i whatever and that puts the parent at ease for that financial part i really think that they can just come in it's not about you know at this point we're enrolled it's not about the money. Here's, you know, five, ten more pairs where we're all good to go. So I think that that is helpful too, just to keep that that part of the relationship going. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think um, the the point about following these kids earlier, I, I totally agree. It's what we do in our practices to to take a little bit of a uh, and actually we'll do it with multiple different treatment modalities, but we do shorten that that initial. Uh, follow-up where we're not going a full six months. And I think that's helpful on all the ranges. I mean, a lot of them, just like you said, the parents are just wanting like, oh yes, we're doing good. We haven't changed. Um, do you think that, so Dr. Locke, when you, when you make a recommendation, uh, is it a relatively firm recommendation for the type of intervention that you're going to recommend for that patient? Or do you sort of give them a, 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 a list of things and say, well, maybe this one's a little bit better than this one. I mean, what's your approach there and, and, uh, and give us that perspective. Um, I definitely have firm cutoffs with some things like I, I won't fit children with higher astigmatism in ortho K. Like I, I know some people will push the FDA approval realm. I don't. Um, so that's a very firm cutoff as if I feel like that will, will work or not. Again, if the child is under 10 and they have two and a half diopters of astigmatism, I'm not going to try to mask that with anything or, or, or two. Let's even call it two. Like I'm wanting to make sure that they get really crisp vision with glasses and maybe atropine so that I'm not affecting any visual development. So from that standpoint, sometimes I have firm cutoffs. But other than that, I do, I let... Um, especially young patients, let's say uh, an eight-year-old minus two sphere who's kind of considering contacts, but parents, you know, they're like, oh my goodness, contacts for an eight-year-old? What? Yeah. Um, yeah. But they're- How old is two, how, how young can you fit kids in contacts? And I always get that question like, uh, yeah, a lot younger than your kid. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. I must not I- have communicated that well. With Jesus with my, my background from Cincinnati Children's, you know, I was doing aphakic babies, and I'll, I'll even tell them that I'm like, you can anybody can wear contact lenses. Um, so if they're on the fence about it, the way that I have my program set up, because they're not purchasing a supply of lenses until my fit and kind of trial period, they just they enroll in the program, they commit to doing a treatment. I fit them in the lens, we go through insertion removal training, I'll just spend some trials, and then I let them go for one to two weeks with those trials and they come back. 
At that follow-up visit, they say, Dr. Locke, I love contact lenses. Everything's going great. Sometimes parents are still helping, but everybody's super comfortable. And then they purchase the lenses. Sometimes they come to that visit. They say, Dr. Locke, I love this, but I need a little bit more help. We do another training, insertion removal training. And then I let the parent call me over the phone in another week and tell me what they want to do. Or they say, Dr. Locke, it's not the time for contacts yet. Let's just do eye drops. And I say, great, we can you know, try this again next year. We could try it even again in six months if you wanted. But I give the patient that out and the parents that out so that we're all on the same page and they're, you know, they're not purchasing more than they need. Everybody's really happy with whatever treatment plan we finalize. And so I would say I have the most flexibility between atropine and contact lens programs. And I do switch some kids, you know, six months is a long time for a kid. You know, it's like, you know, 10 to 10 and a half, oh, huge difference. So um, I, I give that flexibility um, for my patients and for the families with treatment regimen in that regard, because Nothing is going to work if the patient is not able to use it like we're prescribing. One of the things I wanted to ask you all about was just that, um, was what learning, so Justin and, and Michelle, uh, what learnings did we have based on some of the in-market uh, survey data and research data that we have from the eye care professional? What did they glean from this information? Uh, relative to what their approaches were and their confidence with their approaches. Michelle, you want to take that one? <laughs> so there are a couple things. Um, probably the most significant one was that the doctors that we spoke to really believed that their relationship with their patients and their patients' families were strengthened because they elected to offer myopia management in the practice. And when we think about a lot of the challenges that we hear in the marketplace now, particularly in the contact lens space, we hear people talking about commoditization of contact lenses, about different things that make it more challenging to acquire and retain patients. This is a, an area of care that actually brings the patient, their family, and the practitioner closer together. So that's something that came through very strongly. Another piece of feedback that we had from, from optometrists was that they felt that this made them a leader in the eye care space and that they were offering the best that they could to their patients, that they are, are offering innovative care, they're, they're ahead of the curve, if you will, and that gave them additional confidence in terms of their space in in the profession, which I think is really encouraging when we when we look at, you know, some of the, the things that we maybe hear or see and frustrations that people have to to say that this brings makes doctors feel really good about what they do and that they're leading the profession and their patients feel more connected to them are really strong, strong pieces of feedback for sure. I mean, just my general observation, I, I want to hear some of your things as well, Dr. Locke, but my general observation, and, and Dr. Kwan, you can probably clarify this even more uh, if you have a different perspective, but um, uh, when I when I watch, so I'm, kind of, I'm really excited. I'm going to AAOMC for the first time at the end of this month, and uh, but, but I've interacted with a number of those doctors over the years that, that are kind of always going there, and 
I don't know about you, but my sense is that myopia managers, I know this is, that's a, a specifically an orthokeratology uh, meeting, but um, myopia managers, like don't, don't, it's all blue sky for them. They are, they're just love the profession. They love what they do. They, they're super passionate and excited and like nothing gets in their way. Is am I misreading that or, or is that accurate in your perspective, Dr. Kwan? No, I'd say that's spot on. It, it's, it's true. They, they just love showing up to work. It's the best part of their day when they have a child in myopia management, in their chair, Michelle said, they're just catching up on life, you know, and, and soccer field, like soccer camp and kids at school, all their, all their activities. Um, I think what I try to frame for our colleagues is we know this to be true. There's plenty of kids with myopia that need help, right? And yes, there can sometimes be some disgruntlement of like, you know, who's doing myopia? Are they doing it as well as they should be or can be? I mean, we're all, we all should be trying to help each other do, do better, right? Uh, with more valid science, um, with, with better treatments, uh, with better efficacy and success, ultimately. Um, so I try to reframe that uh, in some, I, I did an Arvo poster recently where uh, we kind of made an estimate, right? If all 70,000 ODs and OMDs did myopia management, which we know not all 70,000 ever will here in the US, uh, we'd each have 278 kids. Um, so until Chris Wolf meets your 278 number, yeah. uh, Dr. Locke, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, we all have a bit more work to do and, uh, and then some, obviously a glaucoma specialist is not going to do 278 kids themselves. And, and so I think, yeah, Kristen, all the work you're doing with, uh, the NOA and things like that. And however, you know, um, history there is, uh, I think the ophthalmology and optometry professions need to work even harder together, uh, for this, for this cause here and standard of care also is, is. A little tricky. It means something a little different to everybody. You could read the definition and, and so on, but we always like point back to probably nine, 10 years ago. I always say, look at the Flitcroft paper from 2012, you know, really crafting myopia as a disease, a lot of good, oh my gosh, the reference list is so extensive on that paper. And then recently, um, you know, the Atlantic had put something out where Maria Lou started her myopia clinic without pay. I didn't realize that part. <laughs> On a Sunday at Berkeley, a Sunday clinic without pay, that was 2013. So we're really looking back at the people that paved the way, right, 10 years ago. So we always say the standard of care is not coming. It already happened last year with the World Council of Optometry. Uh, but that really gets excited, I think. And the AOMC group, I think, is now like, yeah, just trying to rally even harder, which I appreciate about them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, I think yeah. Um... I heard uh, Dr. Liu speak, I can't remember how many years ago, and um, just her articulation of the physiologic changes that occur within myopia that become this sort of death spiral, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. Just perpetual, perpetual, uh, like was really mind blowing to me. I mean, I, I, I thought, well, we can do this and maybe we can slow this down. This was, you know, 20, 14, maybe when we really started doing, okay, we're, we're, we're having treatment options, but then we can also, there's some evidence that I was pretty clear about like, okay, we can slow this down mm -hmm. in our practice. Um, but, but hers was like, like, oh yes, there's, there's likely physiologic changes that aren't just theoretical in terms of risk for, for, uh, secondary diseases. There's, there's all these structural changes that are oh, occurring gosh, yeah. that is just like blew my mind. 
that was just like, where was this? How come I didn't know this? You know, a good example uh, of that, Chris, is like she uh, shares a study where the scleral fibers are uniquely yes, different in patients yes. with myopia. And uh, to that end, uh, we just got back from the International Myopia Conference. There was a paper uh, through uh, Dr. Fu out of Singapore. She said with like AI and um, their kind of machine learning abilities, they could take a fundus photo of, say, I don't know, an eight-year-old and predict just with those subtle changes in like the macular optic nerve area, if this child, five years, would they um, develop high myopia? And that was like amazing stuff, right? And really? That's kind of the energy. sensitivity was? No, I don't have the rocker analysis or the yeah. Yeah, specificity sensitivity, but... If we can get there, my gosh, that's that's gonna be amazing. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, so that that brings up a whole other thing, and I'll ask I'll ask the clinician of the group, um, yeah. only because I want to get your perspective, Doctor Locke. Um, what about the uh, when you note retinal findings? You know, when I was in school, when I was in training, you would just be like, "Oh, that's a myopic crescent." What's your perspective about how you're documenting other retinal uh, changes associated with myopia? Mm. That's a really good question. Um, a part of a thing to know is I'm only seeing pediatric patients right now. Um, so things that I look out for um, is just like subtle retinal thinning. Like I'll call it a myopic fundus. You know, you look at a retina and you can automatically tell that that's thin. And so let's say that, um, you know, they're 12, they're a minus two, but you are already seeing that myopic fundus. Well, that probably means that their cornea is flat and they have a really long axial length. So that kid is probably in the 95th, 99th percentile for their length, even though, you know, minus two, maybe not a big deal. Oh, that's a reason to to get a scan, to do something. Um, other things that I look for, I catch retinal findings in kids all the time. I've had two kids with a percolated retinal holes this year. Both were myopic, um, but, you know, you got to look for those things. And I feel like sometimes that's easily missed, um, especially as we get more comfortable with doing these really nice optos images. I think it's really important to at least look in, with your kids with myopia, especially if they're over minus five, all the way out to the, the edges of their retina. Um, those are really like the, the main things that I'm, that I'm looking for that way. And I think that topography is also very important. Um, as, as part of my myopia management consult, I am getting a baseline topography. Oftentimes, you'll have kids with really high astigmatism in conjunction to their myopia. You're seeing these refractive changes, and sometimes you can catch. I, I've, I have also caught a couple early form proofs keratoconus patients where, again, it's really their cornea that's changing more than their axial length. And, um, you know, cross linking is FDA approved 14 years, and you have to have a baseline topography to show change. So if you're taking that baseline topography as part of your myopia management consult, well, that plays into thinking, I'm sorry, there's a little bug. That plays into thinking about um, eye care for that patient, at, you know, as a whole for their whole life. And I think kind of what Justin was talking about and what you were alluding to, Chris, is we have to think about myopia from a disease perspective and all of the changes that, that are happening in the eye. Um, I, I wanted to mention briefly when you were talking about your blue sky myopia management practitioner yeah. that it's Are you not a blue skyer? No, I definitely am. <laughs> I, I definitely am, but I think it's a spectrum. You know, I think that if you are mainly using, if you're going to pick anything, my site is easy. Like if you're looking for candidates that can wear 
a daily disposable lens that, you know, that don't have high astigmatism that fall within that criteria, that's so easy. It's just like if you have, you know, your sweet 75-year-old grandma that has, you know, glaucoma and, you know, maybe you can manage her with latanoprost, maybe she gets a mix and, and that's something you feel comfortable with. Yay, wow, you know, but um, I also, because I, I am kind of a referral, you know, I also have minus seven, partially accommodated with esotropia with high ACA ratio, you know, that's maybe not the one that you want to be managing. And I think that there is an opportunity in this field for that kind of, um, those, those levels of what we're com comfortable with, just like with any other eye disease that we all manage. And there's no shame in doing that. Um, there's no shame in, in, in focusing and practicing in, in the area that you that you feel confident in. And I think my site really is a good place for, for anybody to start. Well, Chris, I think if I could, really, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Go ahead Can I really yeah. quickly touch on the retinal part? I know uh, some listeners might know, like Tom Aller actually measures out in pixels the level, uh, the area of peripapillary atrophy. I wouldn't go that far per se, uh, but yeah, just being attuned to that. Cause I know Chris, as much as you read the scientific literature, and we always say clinical research makes you a better clinician. I kind of been a living example of that as well as others. And I got a really great opportunity to do a prospective randomized control, control trial in, in children for myopia control uh, from 2014 to like 2016. And I remember way back in Berkeley, like when you're reading the textbooks about lattice degeneration and let's say 9% of the population, right? So for one, when I was teaching students, they're like, if you're doing like 10 DFEs and you're not finding lattice one out of 10 times, you may be missing it, right? But for the study, I literally saw children develop lattice from one six-month visit to the next. Oh, wow. And so that was just like an eye-opening moment for me. And, and I know other colleagues have, yeah, serial fundus photos uh, showing optic nerve churning over time as well. So. I just thought I'd add that because it's just, you can't ignore it, right? <laughs> well, I think it, it just underscores the fact that like, you know, we don't think this. I mean, we're not, we're, we're not morons, right? We, we, we don't think about it like this, but we forget that like lattice degeneration doesn't start like no, none today and there tomorrow, right? Like, yeah. And, yeah. and myopic crescents don't start none today and there tomorrow. There's this kind of gradual progression. And I think in school, and schools do a wonderful job of training. I'm not, I'm not knocking schools, but my recollection, my realization was always like, well, myopic crescent, no big, you know, it's just not a big deal. And it's just part of what you see with myopes. But, but actually like, there's all these other things like that's that's probably a significant reason that they're that are greater risk for glaucoma over time. And and is it actually uh, a retinal finding that is part of the disease process as opposed to uh, as opposed to just a refractive error? I think it's clear that it's probably part of that disease process in my in my perspective. Again, I, I'm not saying I, I know all of it, but I would say like, well, what else would I describe that as? I mean, it's it's yeah. it's part of that stretching right that we're trying to mm -hmm. control. And so just when you start thinking about it like that, um, it's, it becomes much more than just, quote unquote, a refractive error. And we're just trying to keep refractive errors low. It's actually like you are trying to limit that, that axial elongation and the subsequent retinal findings and the subsequent risk that come with those retinal findings over time. So it's just, it's just an interesting observation. And I think a lot of times we could just think about it as, oh, it's just a refractive error. It's just a refractive error. In fact, it's not at all. Uh, and that's what um, Dr. Dr. Liu's kind of discussion really kind of like allowed me to be like, aha, that's, you know, that's it. 
So, Dr. Andrews, I'm going to be respectful of, of Dr. Locke and Dr. Kwan's time, but this you do the best job of summarizing our conversation. So, any last learnings that you have from your perspective uh, that that clinicians and doctor and you know uh, researchers can glean from from all the things we've discussed today? Well, I really want to just recognize Dr. Locke's achievements here. You know, she shared at the beginning that she started with my site right from the very beginning as she came out of residency. And I think sometimes practitioners who look at others who are actively involved in myopia management think I can't do that. I don't have a, that long background that I need to do this. It's gonna take a long time. And so I'm just so impressed, Christy, with what you've done in such a short period of time. So actually, I don't have anything to add. I just wanna amplify some of the things that you've already said because they're, I think, really, important take-homes. Um, the first is just this whole bit around confidence. And it's clear that you're confident in what you do. And that confidence is absolutely supporting your ability to grow the practice. Because our research says that parents trust their eye doctors. And I can't think of, of anything that contributes to that more than just the confident approach that you take with parents when you're talking to them. But that confidence comes from some things that you've put into place that maybe you don't even realize how special they are. But that templated approach that how you talk about the child's myopia, you know, you said, you have to talk about the child, you have to talk about their age and, and how their myopia is progressing, you have to talk about the family history with that. When you're consistent with that every time, and you're telling that story, you're coming across as confident to the parent and helping them make a decision your intentionality around not rushing. You've built it into the program. I'm not gonna rush through this. This is an important decision. I'm building trust. I know they're gonna make a decision based on what they tell them and I'm not gonna rush myself and I'm not gonna rush them because this relationship matters. And then the fact that you've built in extra time. You knew parents need a little bit more handholding at the beginning. And so instead of leaving them wondering should they call back? Should they call and ask that question? You just built it in with that extra three month visit, making sure that at that beginning as everyone's getting going, they've got that extra touch point, that celebration of, oh, you got your lenses out on your own. Oh, you you are really good at, at, at reading the eye chart now and doing these refractions, those little milestones along the way that really make a difference. This, these are all the things that our research has told us that you have put into place and are just really, really doing a great job with it. Because at the end of the day, all the science, all of those things, it really comes down to a parent saying, I just want to do the best for my kid. And if this gives them an opportunity to have a better future, then I want to be a part of it. So thank you for really just showcasing how all of this, these important steps just become part of who you are and how you can just implement them every day in your practice. I think it's fantastic. Dr. Andrews, what a way to summarize. I, I couldn't have said it better and I won't even try. Dr. Locke, this was awesome. I, 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 I totally agree with Dr. Andrews' perspective. All of those things are true. I, I will just amplify you come across uh, with genuine confidence and genuine authority and I know why your patients and their parents trust you. So uh, I can't wait to get to know you sooner uh, or more uh, in the future. Uh, Dr. Andrews, thanks again for, for all of your, your time and for your perspective. Dr. Kwan, as always, uh, 
Uh, thanks so much for being here.